Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hi everyone, my name's John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic. Today I'm going to be talking to Kaleem Aftab, the author a co-author of Spike Lee's autobiography. Of course, Spike Lee is a renowned filmmaker whose latest film, uh, The Five Bloods, uh, had enormous success on Netflix. And as he is also president of the jury at Cannes uh, the week that this goes out, I thought this would be a perfect opportunity to share this conversation with Kaleem. Remember, if you enjoy the episode, please like, subscribe, and generally spread the word as far and wide as you can. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Jonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. So we're going to do this podcast right now. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, basically. Okay. How did you first get into writing about film? What was what was the first your first experience of writing on film? Oh, that's a good question. I guess the first experience I had on film was probably when I was at university, I entered a competition which was to do a 25-word review of Train Spotting and the prize was two cinema tickets and it was being organized by um List the list, the Scottish list in magazine. And um, I was at university and I applied and I was one of the winners. So obviously from that more moment, I felt like I was the greatest reviewer in the world. What did you go and see with the tickets? 
That I cannot remember. I used to watch so many films at university that it just, you know what? The tickets were three pound fifty in those days. It wasn't like the greatest price in the world, but still, what was nice was in the cinema next to the train spotting release and the cameo. They had my review up, which was nice. All oh, right. So you sort of saw, began to see your name not exactly in lights, but at least in a pull quote. Oh, they were in lights in my mind. <laughs> in your head, they were in lights. <laughs> Always. And what What about, and, and so that's the very sort of beginning, uh, but moving into sort of publishing something, into, into writing professionally? Kind of. I mean, that was the kickstart that I needed that made me think, uh, well, prior to going to university, I'd worked for the Morning Star as an intern for six months. But mostly that was subbing on... TV pages, so I guess I probably wrote, technically I probably wrote about film then, uh, mm. a couple of few lines. But And then mostly I was doing football stuff while I was there, right. and I'm trying to think. No, it was later on. I didn't write my first film pieces. I guess I wrote about Dogma 95 and was one of my first main pieces. And my hot take, as they like to call these things now, was that the rules didn't mean anything. What was really exciting was that it was being shot on digital cameras and that was what was going to change the universe. And of course, once again, I was right. And, so, and this Marvel thing is going gonna, is gonna to be big. You watch, you mark my words. Nah, that's over, isn't it? It's done. I mean, uh, it's toilet paper for... Uh, you and Scorsese. The masses. Yeah, but what did you study at university? What were you doing there? I studied law. Right. So well, you're the second um, the second person we've had on this podcast who started via law. I was going to say it's great training for film reviewing right. because it's all about interpreting words, interpreting ideas, looking at facts and putting your own spin on them to present your argument. And so they just teach you about presenting arguments all the time. And you do things like moot court cases where you have to argue about something that you really don't believe in and you soon learn some tricks that i've still used to today yeah, so sort of moral flexibility as well sort of comes into it oh no my morals are high <laughs> i don't know what is yes and no john i'm suggesting no i am i am alleging that you have a will have a, an ability to to spin words and arguments in such a way that it's not necessarily identical to the truth. Every word I write is the God's honest truth. <laughs> um, to someone's God, anyway. <laughs> what about like the first time you sort of started going to press screenings? When, when was that about? So when I came out of university, I had a few friends who had been quite successful at a young age at acting. And so we started making short films together and I was writing about film. And then I used the fact that I had worked at the Morning Star previously to go into university to then start going to press screenings. I wrote a couple of reviews for the Morning Star just to get myself acquainted with the business and how to do it. So that was really the start. But I would really say the first kind of real press event I did, and what was much more important to me, was going to the Edinburgh Film Festival. Right, that was your first festival as well. That was my first festival. It was a great year. They had, I'm trying to think, they had Festin right, on right. there. That was the first time I saw Festin, which was incredible. They had Bruno Dumont's Le Humanité. 
I interviewed a little-known director called Gaspar Noe, who had done I Stand Alone. It was like a wonderful, wonderful festival for me. Whatever happened to Gaspar Noe and Thomas Wittenberg, eh? You never hear about them anymore, do No you? idea. No. No idea. Those European directors are all dead in the water. They're all doing Marvel films, apparently. <laughs> I mean, Vinter, actually, Festen, I only saw for the very first time, like, about, I think I, I caught it on movie about a year ago, and it, it was really good. <laughs> I mean, late to the party, but it was, I was really, I really loved it. I thought it was great. And a lot of the characters in the film was a late to the parties. That's one of the plot uh, points, isn't <laughs> well, it? I always like my own approach to viewing a film to mirror the protagonists in some in some way. <laughs> You know. Exactly. Although, how did it hold up with the visuals? Because I imagine watching the film is quite hard these days because it was yeah. quite scrappy even back then. Yeah, it, it definitely has that sort of home movie camcorder aesthetic, which, I mean, is totally coherent with the theme of the film. But but I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, in a sense, it's so of its time. It kind of makes it very of its time. And I think it holds up maybe a lot more than, say, David Lynch's Inland Empire, which has a sort of similarly ropey digital sort of camcorder uh, aesthetic oh yeah but uh, Inland Empire was terrible the first time around so. I, I've never made it all the way through to tell you the truth I, I'm uh, I've, I've got it to watch and I'm, I'm really determined to watch it but um, it's just one of those that seems to slip down lower in the pile every time I every time I look at it okay so then you so you, Edinburgh Film Festival gave you contact with filmmakers and and um, sort of the world of cinema in a sort of deeper way i guess and then from there to sort of becoming a freelancer good question i guess that was kind of the moment that i was so at the edinburgh film festival i remember the first time that i got paid to write an article which was a uh, princely 50 pounds oddly that's probably more than they'd pay you today to do an interview of yasmin dizdar who was a filmmaker who made a film called beautiful people it had gone to i believe it had gone to Cannes, and then it was in Edinburgh and um, I could be wrong there but it was the big thing and I snagged an interview with him I remember I was so excited I didn't even go on holiday that year because the interview coincided with the dates I was supposed to go right. <laughs> um, shame I would never do that now but you were young you were foolish you were dedicated I was young foolish and felt like this could be a career how wrong I was and so I remember I did that interview and that was great but the main thing that happened to me at Edinburgh that year was I was watching Lou Humanite and I spoke to the programmer who was called Richard T Kelly now as he goes by not to be confused by the other more infamous R Kelly and there's, there's two now I think there's many, I think. Oh, God. And so that actually sent me on a road that would eventually lead to doing a book. But that at that time, the list was the first piece and I started freelancing then. But also, you know, given the poor state of affairs of payments, which has never really changed. I also did a job which was working in the dot-com boom on a film website called filmworld.co.uk. That was always destined to fail. And there were selling hard-to-get videos. Can you imagine that right. as a business proposition these days? But there we go. But that was, uh, so that was all adding to it. And in that time, I was pitching mostly successfully to the list and not so successfully elsewhere to start freelancing so it was kind of parallel and then I had a few years of working on websites until 2002 when I finally took the commitment to jump 
and become freelance or full-time. That whole period is a very strange period because in a, in a sense you're, you're going in, you're straddling sort of the, the end of the print days and the, the, the whole boom in blogs and internet sites. But it was, I, I always wish I was paying, I, I had been paying more attention when all that happened because th there was, there were opportunities there that were, that were there for the taking, I Oh, definitely. I remember uh, one conversation I had uh, with the CEO and he was like, what do you think? I've been offered this, uh, this thing called Bitcoin. Should I buy some? And it was literally five pounds for like five or something ridiculously cheap. I was like, nah, sounds like a rubbish idea, that one. Although then someone else talked to me about this idea and it wasn't YouTube, but it was something similar which was just putting, letting everyone put videos on. And I thought, oh yeah, that's a great idea. I can see how that works. So that was fun paying attention to it, but mostly because I was wanting to write about a film, I wasn't so interested in the actual website business of it. And I was more into how to grow. And that period was amazing because yes, it was the birth of websites, but it was also El Dorado when it came to newspapers. That was like, the biggest edition of X and Y ever. And that was the selling point. We have 25 supplements on a Sunday right. for you to read. And that was, so going into that market and trying to break into the newspaper market as a young writer, there was a lot of opportunities and possibilities. And once you kind of hit that level, it was fairly decent pay at the, the time. The book you write is the authorized autobiography or, you know, as told to Kaleem Aftab, of Spike Lee's, Spike Lee's biography, sorry. That's my story and I'm sticking to it, I believe is the subtitle. Who came up with the subtitle? Was that you or Spike? That was Shelton Jackson Lee. Yeah, he came up with that. He sent it to me when I know the title after we'd finished. And he said, that's what I thought, you know what? If you want to call it that, then you clearly write a book. Even though there was a bit of criticism of him in there, but it was great. Yeah, no, that was amazing. I mean, the way that came about was, um, as I said, I was at Edinburgh, I met this guy, Richard T. Kelly, and just by the by, he was programming the Bruno Dumont and certain films at the festival, but he was also an assistant editor at Favour and Favour. And so a few months later, he contacted me as I told him that I spoke French because I'd done a year of Erasmus in Maris and asked me if I'd like to go to Lille and interview Bruno Dumont for an anthology series they used to do called Projections. Right. And so I went and did that interview. He really liked it. And then he said, would you like to do a director on director series book? Right. And uh, I was like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. But I kind of don't want to do a directors on directors book, because if I want to hear what a director says about a film, I'll just watch the commentary on the DVD. Why do I want to read about it? I want to see the visuals and everything. Yeah. I was ahead of my time there, rejecting word for the image uh, <laughs> but you know so um i wasn't ahead of my time in that i did a deal with the publishers that was to pay for a q a book <laughs> i did a whole massive uh, interview book with uh, loads of uh, interviews with everybody and also got spike on board and rather excitingly went and worked out of his office in new york in, in new york exactly yeah. so that was amazing i mean trying to get the book was insane as you can imagine so i'd kind of it was an odd thing that happened was the favor and favor asked me who would you like to write a book about a director 
I threw a couple of names at them, not even imagining that I hadn't done Spike Lee yet, because for me, he was like on the Scorsese level. Um, one of the first films that had a major impact on me was probably Jungle Fever first before Do the Right Thing, because I was like 14 when Do the Right Thing came out, 14, 15, whereas Jungle Fever, I was a little bit older. And I was also, you know, having quite a few uh, interracial relationships at that time. <laughs> so it was like a perfect zeitgeist moment for me to watch that movie. And that had a deep impact. And then I went gone back, rail, watched, do the right thing. I don't know how many times. And then Malcolm X had hit. So it was like the biggest filmmaker of that time. And I felt it was incredible that no one had done a book with him. So they said, and I was like, hell, I'd love to do that. And then they were like, okay, well, try and get him. I was like, what? I was expecting them. I was expecting them to be like, and there's Spike Lee on a plate. Yeah, and yeah. Then you just, I thought they uh, would have him behind uh, a curtain or something. And uh, like a, an old I person. mean, can you imagine? I couldn't believe it when they didn't say that. I was like, how the hell do I do that? Oddly, this is uh, where having a big mouth helps. Because then uh, I spoke to a couple of journalist friends of mine. I went, oh, yeah, I'm going to do like... The favor and favor Spike Lee book is going to be awesome. And then uh, one of these people, a friend of mine, was contacted by Hot Dog magazine and said, oh, 25th Hour is coming out. Would you like to interview Spike Lee for us? And he was like, mm, I'm not sure if Spike Lee's my cup of tea, but I've got his wicked idea. I know the guy that's going to write the book on Spike Lee. Right. And so, um, will you, uh, you should approach him, which was awesome. I was writing for him on another, and actually on an internet site at that time called BBC Collective, which was amazing. I mean, I loved doing that. And um, which was also audio visual mixed with, it was ahead of its time. It was dealing with niche and art house subjects. I loved working for them so much back in the days when uh, more interesting things were being attempted with all that money in the bigger, badder space that was around. Oh, come on. And come so, on, Granddad. Um, <laughs> exactly. The tales of the war. You know? <laughs> and so uh, and so he approached me. Then I went to interview Spike for Hot Dog Magazine. And what was funny was, so there's this process. When you get asked to do a book, you still have to write a treatment, and it mm. still has to be approved by the publishing board. And so I'd done the treatment, it had been approved by the film editors, but the publishing board still needed to meet to approve. And it was happening at the same time as the Spike Lee interview was happening. Everything coming together. like Every, Well, unfortunately, you must have felt like the Hannibal situation the was when I was walking in there, I still didn't know for certain that it was 100% commission. Right. So I just felt like, right, I'll just do the best job doing the best Spike Lee interview that I can and make a good impression. So I guess I've managed to succeed because later on that evening, I was invited to the UK printing party for 25th hour. Right. And when I was there, I saw Spike and I went, Spike, I got one more question to ask you. And then he looked really pissed off mm. and he was like, oh, okay, go on then. And I said, well, you know, there's this series of books. They do uh, Scorsese on Scorsese, Coppola on Coppola. I went, well, they've asked me to do one on you. How would you like to do it? And he was like, sure, that sounds great. Contact my people. 
I had no idea really how to contact his people, but I was like, oh, amazing. How do I do that? He was like, just contact the uh, publicist and they'll know how to get in touch with me. And then I thought, well, he said, yes, it's best not to carry on this conversation before I mess it up. And then I uh, made my exit. And then it took months and months of wrangling to get the book over the line oh my god wrangling with the publishers or wrangling with spitely's people no the publishers are great i just said spitely wants to do it but then it was trying to pinpoint a moment for one of the busiest filmmakers in the business to actually commit and spend time and actually do the book so again it was just having um balls of steel that really helped me out because um I contacted, I got the name of his assistant at 40 Acres. I emailed him, hadn't heard back, emailed, waited around. Then I'd gone to Pakistan over the Christmas holidays. So I switched my phone off because the roaming charges were way too much for me. And then when I got back to London, I turned my phone on and there was a message from Jason, who's now a very good friend of mine. But at the time it was like, yeah, so um, Spike just has no time to do this book. So he's not sure he can do it. And I went, well, that wasn't exactly a no. It was just he has no time. Right. And I guess really it was a no, but I just was like wrangling it, spending the argument as much as possible. So then I went back to them and said, well, if that's the case, no worries. Why don't we do the contracts now? And then whenever he has time, we'll just make it happen. And then we won't have all the wrangling of months of the contract. And then apparently Jason later told me that that was the point where uh, he felt like Spike Lee decided he'd definitely do it. Like I wasn't taking no for an answer. And he kind of liked that. So (laughs) then from that moment, literally maybe a couple of months later, Spike Lee was in London again he called me up said let's have a meeting and then he asked me to pitch my idea for the book and I was like well they got this and I know I said it was Leon Lee but I think it'll be much better if I interview lots of people you work with chat to them as well as chat to you and write it as more of a prose book and so he seemed really down with that idea he asked me what my favorite one of his films was and uh, I thought, I know this, he's expecting me to say do the right thing. That's going to be the wrong answer, right? So, uh, <laughs> Jedi mind trick. I told him my, I told, <laughs> I told him uh, my second favorite Spike Lee film at that time, which was Bamboozled, uh, which was a film everyone hated, but I felt it was genius. And now everybody loves the film. It's been, yeah, it's, it's been like really rediscovered, those... hasn't it? And it's got yeah, all the stuff about blackface like... is, is, you know yeah it's like now it's of its time it seems ahead of its time is amazing but i really connected to it when i first watched it and so when i said that his face lit up because it's one of his own favorite films i was like that was great and then we walked out we were in the the sheraton hotel in london and we walked out and then we bumped into beyonce so i got to meet beyonce as well that was uh, quite a morning i've got to say (laughs) what did you do in the afternoon Uh, I think I just uh, told everybody about how I met Beyonce. Just lay on the, lay day, on the floor of your flat <laughs> and just like... went, ah! <laughs> and looked at my name that was still in lights. Um, is the the so... name that's in lights, is that like just above your head or, or is it just ahead of you, in front of you? You know how it's like constantly, whenever you walk down the street, it's just there in front of right, your face. Right. No? Isn't that how it works? It's like Google, Isn't that how it works? Google Glass. Works yeah, it's... Exactly. <laughs> and so... Um, and so for that moment, and then the weirdest thing happened, which was a couple of months later, I was um, just at home going to brush my teeth, I remember, and I get a call and it's Spike Lee. And he's like, when can you come to New York? 
I was like, what? What do you mean? He's like, come and do the book. Like, literally, he was like, come tomorrow. Right. And I was like, what? I was like, well, it might take me like two weeks to sort out going to New York. Remember, I'd never been to New York before. It was like a year or so, maybe a year and a half after 9-11. It was like, wow. And I was like, wow, okay, I'm going to do this. And so I organized my whole life to leave, to go to New York two weeks later, not really knowing when I would come back or what my plans were but it was a pretty tricky situation because uh i was living with my girlfriend of that time and i was just like right i'm going to new york let's do this let's see what happens and so that was the start of (laughs) film work (laughs) i mean when you went to new york i mean were you being financed like from like the book advance or from the publishers or were you doing it on your own coin Oh my God. I mean, they gave me an advance, which at the time to me sounded like a lot of money. You gotta remember I grew up in like a council estate and like any amounts of money rubbing two coins together yeah. was like a boom. Anything so, over a hundred um, quid, I always used to think was like anything a hundred quid or up yeah. was my sort of after that it was just gravy, you know? So they paid me I mean, the advance was uh, a few thousand pounds. I don't mind telling you what it was now. It was 7,000 pounds. And so, I mean, that seemed like a lot of money for me to do a bit of writing, how wrong I was. But um, they pay it in installments. So you get a little bit on signature, then you get a bit when you deliver the first draft, and then you get a bit when you publish the book. So although that sounds like a lot of money, actually... Little did I know that it was going to take me two years to write the book. Right, so it's like it's like um, a student grant. It's like worse than doing a PhD, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that was so. At first, I used that money, and then as time went on, I started to sleep on people's couches. Was like really, really good friends with the people at the cafe downstairs. Mm. They started giving me free breakfast. It was amazing. <laughs> like, became the hookups I managed to get in New York. But uh, it sort of sounds like you're going for an Orwell sort of uh, down and out in Paris and London. I will write this story one day, but I definitely lived a very great life because that was one part of my life. I was completely broke and I had no money. But the other part of my life was going out, meeting people, saying I was working on Spike Lee's book. And then the, literally it was like a key to New York. Mm. And I was being invited to loads of events, parties, the works. Mm. It was like the time of my life. I've got such nostalgia for those days. Whilst having no money, but living a life as if I was in a gangster rap video. Uh, how did your relationship with Spike progress? I mean, it, uh, what was it? Just to go back a second, what was that initial interview like? Because I've heard different journalists tell me that Spike can be, um, well, you know, a challenging interviewee. I think it depends on who's asking the questions. <laughs> For me, that initial interview was great. We had a great chat about his career. He could see I knew a lot. Um, He gave me really good answers. There was none of that stilted moments that people get. I'd done a lot of research, way more than I would prepare now for an interview, for sure. (laughs) And it was uh, was good. It was good. I I think maybe my mind at the time was less fixated with him and what his responses were. And more of in the back of my head constantly going, should I ask him about a book? I don't know if the book is happening. 
I don't know if I'm jumping a gun, what if he says yes? And then they say, no, how embarrassing is that? You know, all of this, like, it was like asking a girl to the prom, I imagine. <laughs> You're just not sure about what to do. And that was raising through my mind. But I definitely have seen the many sides of Spike Lee. And I've seen different reactions that he's had to different people in different circumstances. But I would definitely say the tone or where your questions are coming from will definitely elicit different responses from him. What, what do you mean? by that what well i think especially now we're living like 20 years down the line sure. and people much more used to interviewing um, african-american celebrities and they're much more around whereas then you got to remember a lot of people have uh, innate racism that they don't even unconscious bias let's call it that let's say they have a lot of unconscious bias that they're not even aware of and they'll go in and if they say something and they think it fits in with a stereotype of black people then that's the whole interview down the drain and they will blame it on a black person rather than they're on their own biases and i've seen that a lot i've seen people go oh, i'm petrified i mean that really benefited me i guess in a way because people were petrified to interview spike lee and therefore, it took a young Muslim guy from London who was like, oh, yeah, I understand being racism and all of this stuff to really connect with him in that way and not actually be scared to talk with him because these are the people I was talking with for the whole of my life growing up. Way scarier than Spike Lee. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of Bob Hoskins in The Long Goodbye. Oh, shit, the mafia. <laughs> you know what's funny? Uh, the Long Goodbye, one of the scenes is by Fulham Power Station, mm -hmm. like the old one, as they're walking by, and that's exactly where I grew up. Oh, right. Okay. That is your manner. That's my manner. And in the old days, like where I grew up, they would like when they shot scenes of Minder, that was like the worst estates in London. They would come to our estate. <laughs> that was eventually like knocked down for uh, asbestos. You know, one of those classy places with no blacks, no Irish, no dogs, and then no packies added on the wall. That was they're sort of running out of, yeah, they're running out of notice board at that point. Yeah, exactly. What? Exactly. And, you know, great. Great range of glues in all of the uh, top floors of all the flats and the staircases. It was a wonderful place to grow up. <laughs> I mean, uh, to, to just reveal my privilege for a moment, when I was a student in Liverpool, I lived on streets where they were always uh, shooting Dickensian uh, period dramas. So it was like Little St. Bride Street and, and Catherine Street and all, a whole area. So it was a different, it was a different vibe. I mean, the flats were still pretty. Simple. I bet there was loads Plus, of black people in those period dramas, right? None at all. None at all. And our <laughs> friend Armando Iannucci came, comes along and a, a few others and starts, starts casting his films differently. Yeah, no, I would say I would, I mean, there is obviously one of the real big episodes in my life where I realized that you really don't want to be famous was Spike and I went, we went up to Boston because he was going to do a talk at a university. And then as we were walking out of the train station, the amount of people that randomly ran up to him, said hello, had their headshots, like train guards with headshots in their pocket, all trying to give it to him. There was like not a second of peace. Right, right. I was like, God, who wants that in their life, man? Not to be able to just like casually go for a walk in a random city hundreds of miles from where you should know anyone. I mean, it was horrible. Um, 
And that made me realize that when someone is that famous, constantly people are after something for them. So it's not surprising that their initial reaction would be, what are you after when you approach them? So they're trying to always engage with people and trying to work out whether they're trustworthy or not, or whether they're angling for something or not. And you need to break that barrier down. And that is what I think happens always, a little bit as well, whenever we're meeting someone super famous. There's that barrier where we really want to be their friend and they really are trying to gauge whether you should even, they should even be talking to you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's also a sort of weird asymmetry in the sense that it's like it's almost what's the word for it it's like a, it's like a, an illusion that, that i wait a minute i've seen you so often you're so familiar to me how can you not have seen me how can how, how come you don't recognize me you know mr clooney what, what's going on here i feel like i'm on first name terms with you and yet uh you know you, you're treating me like a stranger i think that sort of weaves into it that's, that's an uncanny nature yeah, I think that's right. And that's the nature of if you're a proper star, one of the things about star power is that people immediately like you. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to do anything. You just have that, you know, that aura, as we like to call it, that just makes you immediately accessible, immediately identifiable, your friend. And you're like, I want to be that person. And it's rare, you know, there are people that have it and there are people that don't. But if you think about Spike Lee, no matter what you say, whether you like him, don't like him, see him on a basketball court or whatever, he is immediately that kind of person where you look at him and you're like, oh God, Spike Lee's in the room. Well, how did your relationship progress with him? If you're spending more time with him, you're in New York, How are you, are you seeing him every day and doing interviews or... Well, you'd imagine, you know, when someone invites you to New York to like come and work for I mean it was a great privilege to actually it was way more than I could ever expect someone to actually say come and work out my office right I was like whoa that's insane and his office is like a museum it was at that time it was in an old um, fire station there were like rooms where there was loads of video cassettes of everything he's done I got to see student films that he made that will never show to people I got to see his collection of magazines that he collected over the years. So for me, it was a boom because I could just read everything I wanted to. But uh, literally I got there and uh, he was got news that he could prep a pilot to go and make at that time, which was in San Francisco. Sucker Free City, which was kind of a Mike Tyson thing with John Biega. 
which didn't get picked up. I'm sure it would get picked up today, but at that time it wasn't picked up. So he went off to San Francisco. And so I was in New York just pretty much doing research and calling people around. But what was great about being in his office was just I would email people and then literally the phone would ring downstairs and whoever it was would be calling to check that it was like real. Yes. <laughs> and that Spike had really approved it and stuff like that. So that was great to have that help. And so it was odd because the relationship didn't develop immediately in that way we would expect. But over the period of time, which was a long period of time, so it was probably better, whenever he had chances, we would do interviews. It would be like, oh, I'm on the train here, or we're driving up to Philadelphia, jump in the back, let's do these films. And I was painstaking. It must have been quite painful because it wasn't five or six questions about each film. I would ask for about an hour, <laughs> sometimes even longer than the film was. Stories about the movies and like catching things up and then we really developed a really strong relationship it was wonderful. you were speaking to his family and the people who he was working with as well to get a sort of broader picture i mean that's you know how did that work because you're you're you must be getting some opinions which are, are not necessarily all celebratory or laudatory there must be some clashes there there were plenty of clashes i mean as i wrote in the book the only person he really didn't want me to speak to was his dad who would have been someone to talk to because of not just because of it, the biological connection, but because he did the first uh, four scores. And he's, he's actually in She's Gotta Have It. He's actually in She's Gotta Have It, playing music. And uh, that sets off uh, a little reverie scene that we see in the middle of the film. But, and then talks about Nola Darling and the upbringing is a beautiful moment. Yeah, so that was the only person, but then, you know, he has like his sister worked in 40 Acres. She was awesome. Brother Sanke, David, who took photographs on the set. So they were around constantly. Then you're in New York. He's such a New York filmmaker. So nearly all the actors were in New York that I wanted to talk to. So I would go and meet them face to face. Uh, I got to know like Philip Seymour Hoffman pretty well in that period. And so many people had like, they would just talk real about Spike Lee. So it wasn't all like flowers. It was like Spike was literally telling him, tell him the truth. I don't mind. And to his immense credit, there is a lot of skepticism about Spike Lee in that book. And you really get a flavor of his personality from being what you were suggesting, someone who's hard to really get to know, to being this amazing guy once he uh, opens the curtains, so to speak. And it was, and he's had a lot of people he fell out with who were, he was happy for me to talk to. There are a lot of great stories. So that was really amazing. And then the fact that I could put them in the book and everything was put in. It was, and he was allowing it. He was reading it all and he was not, he would never have a criticism about what was put in, but he would maybe correct something factually. And usually that was only his own words. Like he would read something else that someone else had said and go, oh man, actually I remember that wrong. That was what they're saying is right. So it was very magnanimous. Right, right. You never had a, like a disagreement on anything that was sort of major? I would say, uh, I'm trying to think. There was nothing really, no real disagreements. I mean, I did a, I think the 
I did uh, have a disagreement with his sister over something I wrote, which I probably was, I was definitely in the wrong, but I was young and trying to add to the story. I'm pretty embarrassed about it now. Was now I actually see the story she told me was much better. And it was tiny because she was just saying when Spike was a kid, she immediately contradicted him by saying, I never heard my, uh, he's got this famous story about his mum calling him Spike. And he's like, he wasn't really spiky when he was young. That's not what I remembered because she had this, older brother who looked after her and so but I was like oh I want to go smash into this book with like Spike you know the the legend behind the name and oddly it fits more in with the tone of the book if I'd immediately gone this is contradicted because that was what happens throughout and so I kind of that's one of my big regrets in life is that I just wasn't hold true to that um, sorry, Joie. Um, but the rest of it, the rest of it. So there was no disagreement. There was that disagreement with Joie when she read it. But with Spike, there was nothing much. There was there was one thing that he wanted removed because he was, and it wasn't even a bad thing, but it was just a suggestion of infidelity without the person's name. But it was like too many people know the story for it not to be obvious. So I was like, okay, fair enough. I'm going to... Nothing to take away from that. So it was amazing. I mean, the thing is now, it's 20 years ago. I think I should update it, really. Yeah, well, you know, if Faber are listening, we can... Uh... Well, you know, <laughs> I need to have bigger pockets this time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 7,000 ain't going to cut it, baby. <laughs> oh my god no. you know what well, the, the biggest joke of it all is not a joke but actually when we sold the book at the end it was at the time i still don't know if it's true but at the time it was the book that sold for the most amount to an american publisher on their film list and so very easy very by doing all of that work for two years and not like working for what they paid me as an advance i then got much more money out of it just goes to show the work pays. The work pays. Also, that sort of speaks to the fact that there's obviously a readership at the time that were out there waiting for the book to come out or waiting for some substantial work on Spike Lee. I mean, what's uh, incredible to me still is there's never, since that's come out, there's still not been a really good other tome about Spike Lee. If you think about the amount of books that you read about Clint Eastwood or the Coen brothers, for example, you know, everyone and their dog and every publisher's like, yeah, we'll do a coffee table book on uh, on the, these certain people. And that just never happens with Spike Lee. It makes you still wonder about that unconscious bias that's going on. It seems to be the case that the actual audience is much further ahead than the studios or the publishing companies or or whatever you know that they're they're giving excuses about not we're not going to do this because it's not really there's not really a, a demand for it yeah i mean that was the age-old demand wasn't it there's no like black actor that can like sell a movie and yet eddie murphy's been selling films in the 80s all of this stuff you know sydney poitier was a star in the 60s and 70s it was just like oh they're the exception um, and then you look at the music business which from the late 70s was dominated by black stars and that whole idea of this whole group doesn't sell or films made by women don't sell all of these lies that are that capitalism is used as an excuse it's disgraceful so the book's published and it's a success it sells very well what's your why i mean you do you you don't follow up with another book at that point do you 
You know, it was interesting. I was immediately offered by the American publishers, um, Norton, who are amazing publishers, by the way, uh, as well as Faber. I mean, how lucky was I? And I was like approached by agents and the works to work on another book. Norton had even said there was an idea I had. They were like, you don't even have to have like the permission. And I was like, I don't want to do it unless it could be a biography. And if that had happened, I mean, I really wanted, and I still do. Um, if there's one person I really want to write a book about is uh, Jodie Foster. And I did loads of work. And then I just never really got that good connection that would enable it to happen. Even though she did do a Spike Lee film afterwards, just after the book came out, she was in Inside Man. And I just, uh, couldn't really figure out getting to New York at the right time or how it would happen. Anyway, and then it's one of those things in life. I mean, journal my journalism career from the moment that book came out just skyrocketed. It was like I was getting commissioned every week by the Independent to write something. Magazines were calling me. American magazines who paid like a lot of money in those days were calling me. So my idea, and this is where the kind of thing where you don't have an agent and you do a deal, my idea were books pay terribly and they're just not worth it. Whereas actually I realize now I would have been paid a way better whack of money to do it. And there is some like really sad stories <laughs> in that period because I was approached uh, through Spike by a unbelievably world famous basketball player michael jordan fix... no not michael jordan but uh kareem abdul jabbar oh wow <laughs> to like fix a book that they'd written and i was like oh i'd rather do it from the start i mean and now i see his writing is amazing so it's probably good that i never got to touch it <laughs> i would have ruined it all for him but having had the experience and thought oh my god how long it was i just quoted way too high a price for that book right, was just right. like stupid because i was like i knew i knew nothing about basketball and i didn't want to like just go in and do a book and i'd have to do so much research etc so anyway that's another what might have been but I'm that was one where I'm glad that I didn't do it because I don't think I would have done a great job because it would have not been about love. And the one thing I know about books is you have to write them for love. You don't have to, no other reason is a good reason to write them. Yeah, you have to have the passion. You can't fake that, that part of it. You really can't fake it. And um, yeah. Which leads me on to thinking about um, Jodie Foster. That's, that's why, why Jodie Foster? I mean, I think she's an incredible actress. I think she's been uh, a bit like Spike Lee. She's a marginalized figure. She's been sidestrapped for her opinions. She had to hide her true identity for many years. She was a person who weirdly, probably today still gets sidelined and that's got nothing to do with her sexuality and everything to do with her political views. She's not afraid to say what she thinks. Incredibly talented as a director as well. I think she has this amazing life. And then obviously, and I think this is the reason there's never been a Jodie Foster book, but we have all the, you know, the shooting of Ronald Reagan. Right, right, of course. I mean, what, a, what an unbelievable story she has, especially in that period from the Scorsese onward. And I dread to think now that we know so much more about Me Too and what was happening in America, like 
some of the things that must have been seen or happened to in her vicinity must have been awful. You know, there's so much story there about our towns, about misogyny, about outing people. I just think it would be an incredible book and I'd love to do it. I mean, even when she was making um, Taxi Driver, she's playing a, a, a child prostitute, which, which is essentially someone who's being abused. Yeah, I mean, and she was a child star who came up and... That's it, she's playing it as a child. I mean, how I was thinking about this the other day. How was she protected from, you know, just even in treating the subject would have been incredibly difficult. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I often think that actors are, often do their best roles in works that are closer to their life. And if we right. think about Jodie Foster, that might say a lot. Is that a project that you you would still look to... Yeah, I would love to do it. I don't know. I haven't pursued it because I've been so busy in my life, but I would definitely, um, that is something that would give me a shot to the system to do it. Well, Kaleem, I didn't want to say this, but behind <laughs> this curtain, I have <laughs> Jodie Foster. <laughs> no, that would be great. What else would I do? I mean, there's a, quite a few actors I'm very good friends with now, and I'd love a few of them I can imagine writing a good book about, but I don't know if they'd want me to write that book about. <laughs> Prying into their lives. <laughs> or trying to pry out of their lives. I just, yes, I think that's more. But I think for me, it's always got to be someone who's an outsider, whose story right. is from that perspective. Rather than the son or daughter of XYZ. You know, I could never imagine writing a book about the Cobras, right. for example, or, you know, someone of that elk that has come through or i say that because i know them so it's not like it could it could be feasible if i wanted to but you hate the cohen brothers no i like them i'm not so keen on their films that's uh that's also a problem that's what i mean you got to have love and passion for these projects to want to do it. but you only like there's only one of them that you know. yeah there's one that i know very well ethan exactly so that's all great but yeah yeah and then you know, a Clint Eastwood, none of those guys really appeal to me, you know, that kind of uh, classic superstar. I right. just don't think I connect with their story. I mean, it says a lot about my own background, I guess, you know, the fire. Yeah, and you're also right that they've been well served. I mean, it's not like there's, you know, nobody's waiting for the next book about Clint Eastwood to come out because he's, there are, you know, 10 or 20 on the market already. Exactly. And Tarantino, for example, Tarantino explodes. There's like 20 books about him on the market in no time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that says a lot about what we were talking about before, about what publishers felt was something to take advantage of. Yeah, I think Tarantino had that thing, though, of... Yeah, I'm absolutely sure, in terms of Spike Lee, there was that ob very obvious difference that you're talking about in terms of unacknowledged bias. So I acknowledge that bias, definitely. But also in terms of uh, Tarantino, there was a sense that he was sort of spreading across lots of cultural, lots of the cultural spectrum. There was the music was becoming really popular. And, the, you know, it wasn't just like he was in, he was a film director. There was something of the zeitgeist about it as well. Yeah, he was the Elvis Presley of movie making. Yeah, yeah. You see, that's why you get the big bucks, Clean, because you. I was waffling, and you just put it in a in a pull quote that will be on the poster for this podcast. <laughs> An interesting point that you made just then, though, I, I thought was that like when you did Spike Lee, it was very much you you approached him 
and, and as a journalist and you're interviewing him and then you're trying to get into into an agreement with the book and that and now you're saying well i'm so i'm personal friends with some people who i could write books about i have access does that there's an advantage there but there's kind of also maybe a disadvantage because you're so because you're, you're friends with them it's, would it be difficult to maintain objectivity uh, i'm not sure that would be the problem that i have i'm pretty uh objective to people I know and I kind of even tell people that I don't like their movies if I don't I mean even with Spike I've watched some of his films go I didn't like that one I mean that's just the way it goes and we've like definitely we've which Spike films don't you like uh I mean let's think what would be top of the list that I would uh, I mean the easy one to say would be like the old boy remake that was a incredibly terrible movie didn't work at all. I know people have like an amazing love. What do they love? I mean, now another film that's kind of had a, like School Days isn't one of my favorite films, even though he even wants to make a sequel to that film. It's one that he likes a lot. But within that, there are a load of great films that I really do like that are unacknowledged. Like He Got Game or Clockers, all really great film. Clockers is an amazing film. No one ever talks about that when they talk about those genre films. You know, then there's other ones like She Hate Me, Not So doesn't work quite so well wasn't such a fan of Chirac even though people said that was a renaissance picture Spike Lee on form didn't really work for me you know there's a lot of hit and misses yeah I mean I guess that's true of a lot of you look at Scorsese as well he he, he feels like uh, and Spielberg they are they all have their fair share of misses. and I would say Spike Lee has as many hits as all of those people. I mean, maybe more in some ways. Uh, but the, a lot of his hits are unacknowledged still. I mean, if you ever go back and watch He Got Game, the things that it says about the way that colleges abuse young girls was so ahead of the zeitgeist. And like the desire above everything to appeal to a certain, in that film it was sports stars, but it could have been any stars to come to the college and they're willing to sacrifice women to allow that to happen is like an amazing, amazing indictment. And then we had all that wave of college rape films a couple of years ago and sexual abuse films. And it's like, it was all there in that film. Okay, so in terms of like the future, in terms of the future of Jodie Foster aside as your sort of dream project, have you got any plans to write more books or, or are you sort of like, you're happy in the journalism, that's where you want to be? You know, I've always, uh, for many, many years, I just was happy in the journalism field because I could meet lots of directors it was going to lots of film festivals i love a film festival i do and just traveling around and that fit my personality writing a book confines you to one space for a long time it's a whole different process and so for a long time i wasn't really that interested in doing another book but weirdly because of lockdown i kind of like being in one place <laughs> for a long period of time and so that's kind of made me think yeah i'd do something but i wouldn't just do it there'd have to be an audio visual element to it i'd have to think of ways that would jazz it up that would fit into a crowd that would fit into the new that would be internet friendly 
uh, when you were starting out, um, were you reading lots of film books as well? No, I mean, film books. I would read the Faber directors on direct. I would, I would like go in and out of them. I was much more into reading fiction. Reading nonfiction wasn't a great, which is funny now because now I read a lot more nonfiction and fiction. But at that time, I would say that my passion lie in reading fiction. So there's no film writer that you'd read and you'd think, oh, man, I want to do... Not at all. No film journalist that I would, like, follow. I mean, at the time when I was coming through, um, I did like someone like uh, Jonathan Romney at The Guardian. He was writing at the time. But I wouldn't go, oh, my God, I love and remember his reviews. It was like by the by, like, oh, yeah, he's got, you know, great right. skill with language. And that changed a little bit as I started to write the book and started to work in the film industry more than I saw writers that I liked a lot more. Very rarely did I connect with a lot of writers' opinions. And I think that says a lot about where the writers were coming from in my own background. Whereas I love so many young writers now. I think they're really great. <laughs> so, What's that difference then, do you feel? Do you think it's just so people are coming through sort of a mid middle class? Well, I think now people are coming through from different backgrounds. I mean, they're still very middle class. That would be my one uh, drawback to it. They're still very, like, writing from an, uh, a heightened position in terms yeah. of the class structure. But now, you know, we've gone through... I would say I used to like writing where all everything I thought was a lot. There was a lot of subtext in what I wrote. And now that's not even allowed. You have to be so obvious in the Twitter age. If you're just like not on point and not spelling everything out, people just don't get it, which for me is a bit of a shame. But I think there are people that are really great at doing that that are great at like standing from the pulpit and going, this is what I believe and I'm ready to die by the sword and, and I'm not going to willing to see both sides of the argument and I'm just going to go boom and that's where the whole hot take thing goes off. And I admire that because like I could never do that myself. I'm a bit more like, yeah, I think this and it's there and it's definitely what I'm writing about and I'm going to write about it bluntly but I'm also not going to say that my word is the only word. My opinions always feel a lot more wishy-washy than I sometimes wish. And whenever I take a strong stance, it always feels like I'm faking it a little bit, trying to provoke and trying to, oh, yeah, this is absolutely the worst thing I've ever seen. It's a crime uh, against the eyes, you know. But at the same time, I sort of find my wishy-washiness, at least I'm trying to think of it more as a strength. It's about seeing both sides of everything and about being able to, to appreciate something that's shit and a able to see what's shit about something that's great yeah maybe it's not shit i mean that's the thing right is our perception of it is that and then i think as we're uh, advancing in years to you know our mid-20s i think we realize that strong opinions you know they get lost in time whereas good analysis is more worthwhile now you're reading a bit more non-fiction do you have like a film book that you would recommend to anybody that you would oh i love uh nick dawson's how ashby book right I mean, it's like really well written. It's got lots of anecdotes, told me loads about how, I mean, I didn't know much about how I speak, but I didn't realize how much of a philanderer he was and how much of that came from a, you know, disjointed childhood and the kind of way into directing through editing and the beautiful way. And he also took the approach of interview a lot of people, obviously when he wrote the book, 
how Ashby was no longer with us. So he took that approach and like found letters. And I just found it really quite a wonderful read. Did they base the documentary off that? I don't think they based it off that, but there was definitely an acknowledgement of the book. Right. And he was definitely friends with the filmmaker. So I think it had it had an influence. You know, it's hard to say with a documentary and a book that's both about someone's life. There's bound to be a natural crossover no matter where your research has come. I thought that was a really great film book. There's a Kitano film book that I really like. But my absolute favourite film book now is a kind of very short written autobiography by Akira Kurosawa. Right which is only about his early career. And it's like beautiful. It's amazing. I really, really love it. Oh, I need to dig that out. And is it just called My Autobiography? Or... No, it has a... Oh, God, now that's embarrassing. Now you've, uh... It has a title, but I can't oh, Don't remember. worry, I'll no. Google it and then I'll edit in. You just say, the title is, and then I'll edit my voice in saying the title for <laughs> Look, I knew that. God damn it, God damn it. That on the internet. Now I'm going to do this thing that... Uh... Now we can hear you. T- you we can hear... T- keys tapping on the yeah there you go no wonder no what you were almost right it's called something like an autobiography you said my my autobiography or something now i realize why i couldn't remember the title it's not the greatest title (laughs) it's a little bit wishy-washy isn't it (laughs) but it is amazing and it's got loads of great stories about his brother it's about memory more than anything else it's about what you remember about when you're young and he's got a great way of describing people um, inwardly. So a bit like his films, like their emotional personality is what matters more, you know, the unintributed, what they don't even realize that they're giving out to the world. This is very prose that I could never write myself. Right. Brilliant. Brilliant. That's a great recommendation. Well, listen, Colleen, thanks very much for uh, joining us and participating. It's been lovely to talk to you. And your book is still available. I Googled it earlier. You can still get it. I mean, secondhand, but, you know. The Italian edition is, I think, Feltrinelli. They're also a good publisher. Yeah. Uh, excellent publisher. Long story. Didn't Feltrinelli had... Oh, there was loads of stuff about left-wing terrorism and the Che Guevara photograph was something to do with... Feltrinelli and uh, what was the other thing? Dr. Zhivago, I think, was also one of Feltrinelli's sort of discoveries. It's amazing. I didn't realize how high up the mountaintop I was as I descended down. <laughs> as, you, as you plummeted to the bottom, yeah. Exactly. The story, uh, the story of my life. <laughs> what not to do when you get a book published <laughs> what not to do is like being like oh yeah you know i'm not sure i didn't want to do this it's all or nothing if i don't do this then uh, be a little bit more open but you know there was definitely a uh, writing a book is no joke and so and especially the way i did it and the amount of hours i put in and it was a lot of fear of like how do i do this and that's what happens when you don't get paid properly at the time you don't actually see it as a viable way of making a career but you know you've you've made a career anyway i would say you know you're you've got your name in lights i mean very very fortunate and uh i mean that that is what oddly i say all that but the smiley book did help me after that i've never had trouble yeah put you on the map so to speak thank you uh for having me on uh john it was a great pleasure happy to chat spike lee anytime uh, i feel like i want to write another book just so i could come on another podcast 
yeah, well, well, we've got Jodie Foster on uh, next week, so you can maybe come and uh, I'll, I'll mention yeah, it to Yeah, please. Her. Send this to her, please. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I've got her email. Thanks. Cheers, man. So that was uh, my conversation with Kaleem Aftab, the author of the Spike Lee autobiography. Please remember, if you did enjoy the episode, to spread the word as far as you can. Thanks, as always, goes to Elliot Atkins for the music, Ali Harwood for help with the art. I'll talk to you soon. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.